wheelchair uh, is always back there uh, on our sound and taking care of our sound in all of our worship services, all the times we were paused, learning all of that information. And it, uh, it is uh, it's heartbreaking uh, that he has passed only for us and obviously his wonderful wife, Debbie. And we pray for her and we pray for us because all of these things, as we have sung, just soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Reality is that for Jim, he's better by far. The scripture indicates that and gives us great hope. It's those of us that knew him so well that, uh, that we take the time to reflect and take the time to grieve. Uh, but we do hang on to what the Apostle Paul said in chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He said, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so we, while we grieve, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, because we know, the scripture tells us, that we shall see them again. And for each one of us, there will come a time when we will breathe our last as well. We embrace and hope that hope that doesn't wish, but that hope with the knowledge that we will be with the Lord and better by far. Join me in prayer, please. Father, thank you for the opportunity and the time that we have been able to gather together for worship and celebration. And Father, as we go through our worship time, for those of us that uh, knew Jim and for many in this congregation who knew him well for many years, it is hard. But Father, his commitment uh, to make sure that worship services went well and the sound went well and the time that he put in causes us, as we come together this morning, even more focus of how important this time is. And we want to connect with you. And Father, we want to experience you in your presence. We thank you for Jim and his investment in your kingdom and his investment in each of our lives. And Father, it serves yet again as a model for each of us to invest in your kingdom and in the lives of other people and truly make a difference. And as we worship today, I pray, God, that we will experience you, but, Father, we will also be challenged and encouraged to see ways that we ourselves can be obedient to you in a very special way. So in this service, we dedicate it to you, and, Father, we come to celebrate. In his name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we begin today by giving you thanks. Blessed be your name. Your love endures forever. It never fails. As we open the service today, let us make a joyful noise to you. We pray that we would hear your voice. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work, opening our ears to hear, our hearts to receive your word. May we be transformed into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
tiresome way All along my tiresome way Give me Jesus Give me Jesus Give me Jesus You can have all this world But give me Jesus insight into those words and you would give us insight into our passage of scripture and the father you would help us to understand that you give us choices and the father you have given us opportunity for choices that will bring prosperity and life from your perspective. And we can embrace choices that bring about death and despair. And those are our choices. And I pray, God, that as we look at this passage and numerous passages in Scripture today, as we contemplate the idea of now choose life, of how precious life is. How precious life is for the unborn all the way through our years to the very elderly in our midst. 
Father, you love and care for each and every one. And Father, therefore, we should as well. And so this morning, Father, give us insight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The third Sunday of January every year, Southern Baptists have set aside that Sunday for the sanctity of human life. It is a focus, <clears throat> but primarily on the issue of abortion or the unborn, but in reality, when we talk about the sanctity of human life, we're talking about the sanctity of all life. We're talking about from the unborn to all of us as we're gaining in age. Specifically, as we look at abortion, it has been called over the years an unyielding dilemma, a morally unhappy practice, the agonizing decision, the slide to Auschwitz, and the silent holocaust. Some people define abortion as the interruption of pregnancy through the removal of fetal matter, and some see it as the Wharton murder of the unborn child. And still others fall somewhere in between because they have not decided how to take a stand. I think probably abortion is one of the most emotionally charged issues confronting both the church and society today. And it has been ever since 1973 with the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. For the last 47 years, there has been so much discussion and debate, argument, and court decisions. When you get right down to it, it is a difficult, complex decision. Who can look at a multicolored photograph or a beautiful ultrasound that focuses upon an embryo that is just five weeks old and see visibly developing eyes and nose and fingers and not be repulsed at the practice of abortion that scrapes the walls of the womb and destroys that baby? Have we just seen that very first grandchild and seen those early ultrasounds and seen that in just about a week or two we'll see twins now in our family as far as grand, grandsons? And look at all of those ultrasounds all through the course of my oldest daughter's pregnancy. I'm not sure how in the world we could look at that and not be repulsed. And at the same time, who can think about the over 2,000 teenage girls that become unintentionally pregnant every single day and at the same time not be angered by the moral decline in our culture which focuses, glamorizes carefree sex to a point where it just has become the norm? Or even the failure of parents to teach about human sexuality or even the timidity of the church of the living God to try to provide opportunities to raise children with sexual values firmly grounded in authentic Christian morality and biblical understanding. Who can contemplate the number of abortions over 60 million since 1973 and not speculate that abortion somehow is a profound sign of self-hate? At the same time, who could know a woman who doesn't want to have an abortion, but because of incredible circumstances, there doesn't seem to be 
any alternative and know the agonizing pain that she goes through. In the midst of such complex, painful, and emotionally charged public and private debate, we as Southern Baptists have focused this particular Sunday, but also that dialogue, not only in our theological and our biblical beliefs and our statements and our resolutions at our annual meetings across this nation, but we focus our desire to make sure we go back and look at what Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses 19 and 20 has to say in the decisions about life and death. And I think it's important for us to understand in that chapter of Deuteronomy 30, the people of Israel are about to go into the land of Canaan. It's about to that land that was promised to them. And God was setting before them, you know, you, you have the opportunity to make choices. And the choices are going to bring life and prosperity. They're going to bring death and destruction. But it's going to be your choice. And I think that relates specifically to where we are today. Because I think we need to think about what it means to be a moral agent, to make a moral decision, and then our responsibilities as moral agents. So those three things I want to address this morning because they deal with a lot of decisions that we make, in particular on this day, the sanctity of human life. So what does it mean to be a moral agent? Well, God has made us free moral agents. From the very beginning of creation, God has endowed us with the ability to make decisions. My goodness gracious, Adam and Eve were able to, <laughs> they were able to name every single animal in the garden. I've seen some of those names. <laughs> There's a lot of animals out there, and they're complex. They had the ability of the intellect to do that. They were able to make decisions. You know, we can make moral decisions or we can make immoral decisions. Sometimes society comes in and says, listen, you know, the reality is we just can't help ourselves. That's just how we're made or built. And that's not true. You see, we have a choice. God has given us the choice to make those decisions. We have to decide how we're going to make them. It started in the very beginning. Again, with Adam and Eve, they were free moral agents. They were free to eat from the true of knowledge of good and evil. And they chose incorrectly. They could either choose to or not to do that, and they chose to do that in direct opposition to God. The people of Israel were free to break God's covenant. They were the people that God had called to be a kingdom of priests, and they chose time and time again to go against what God desired. And off they would go into captivity until they would have a revival, and God would bring them back into this beautiful relationship to say again, you have that choice. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked him very specifically, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you must keep the commands all the way. And, and, and uh, the rich young ruler said, well, I've done that from my childhood on. And he probably had really tried hard to do that. And then Jesus said, well, then you need to sell everything you have and come and follow me. The Bible says because he was a, a wealthy man, he chose to walk away and it broke the heart of Jesus but he had the choice to do that we ourselves are free moral agents and directly related to the sanctity of human life we are free to decide that abortion on demand is morally acceptable or we are free to determine that a 
abortion on demand is morally unjustifiable. Or we're free to decide that we're not going to think about it and stick our heads in the sand along with the consequences that come. You see, we're free moral agents. The second question is, what does it mean to make a moral choice? We're free moral agents. God provided that opportunity. <coughs> so how do we go about making those choices? Well, God set choices before us. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, he said to the people of Israel, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. He said, I've set it before you. I've laid it before you. You have a choice to make. God didn't make the choice for them. Obviously, they knew what God wanted because he had communicated it very clearly before he said this. Exactly what he wanted. What his desire was. But then he laid it before them and said, you have a choice to make here. Life and death, blessing and curse. Well, we're going to have to make that kind of moral choice as well. We've got to decide which road that we're going to follow. A poem I embraced when I was a senior in high school that still just touches my heart seems to address this. Robert Frost in his poem, The Road Not Taken, ends that poem with this. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged into a yellow wood, and I, I chose the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Choices. To go into a place where there's a fork in the road, and you've got to choose to go left or right. The well-traveled or the one that is not so traveled. Jesus gives us that kind of understanding in his teaching as well in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Decisions. Decisions about life and death, blessing and cursing. Decisions about the wide road that leads to destruction or the narrow road that leads to life. We all have decisions to make. We can follow the well-traveled, well-worn road that society has given us. It's a very uh, humanistic focus where man is narcissistic in thinking that everything revolves around him or her. <clears throat> and so whatever is best for me is going to be the very best. Or we can take the one less traveled by and frequent it more by believers in Jesus Christ, mandated by what the scripture has to teach us. It is the narrow path, the one that Jesus said few take. It goes against the current. It goes against the common wisdom of the day. It goes against all the poles that might be taken. It is a, it is a focus of saying, listen, as a moral agent, I need to make the moral choice that is one that affirms what God desires. It is a choice between life and death, blessing and cursing, destruction and life. Moral agents cannot escape, ignore, or forfeit the responsibility to decide. You see, when a choice is put before you, you can't just hide your head. Because if you do, you've made your choice because you haven't acted. 
Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the God your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is this idea, this understanding, as the people were about to go into the land flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua laid it before them. He said, choose for yourselves this day. In other words, the choice is yours. Nobody can dictate that. Nobody can coerce you to do that. And you should not let anybody coerce you. But you've had to have your moral compass. And Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're decisive. We're not sticking our head in the sand. We are going to serve the Lord, no matter how difficult it is. In Jeremiah chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, God said, furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. He will escape with his life. The people of Israel had found themselves in a very difficult place. The Babylonians, powerful. The Israelites had regressed in their desire to serve God and now they were on the verge of either being annihilated or taken into captivity. That's part of the ramifications of choosing incorrectly early. But now he's saying, I'm going to give you a choice again. He said, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. You leave the city, you become captive, but you'll live. But you stay here, you will definitely die by the sword or by famine or by the plague. Well, their earlier choices that brought about surrender for many, but they lived. They lived to make better choices in the days ahead. But those who chose incorrectly did not. The fact is, what each of these scriptures are telling us is he's laying before us a choice. I'm setting before you this decision. And so therefore you can't escape it, you can't ignore it, you can't forfeit the responsibility as a moral agent to decide. Remember God's revelation, his will. Because even though we are free to choose, God has revealed the choice that he wants us to make. The author of life wants us to choose life. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19 says, Now choose life so that you and your children will live. He's laying before them exactly what his revelation, what his enlightenment, what his will is for, for each and every one, is to choose life. God respects our freedom of choice. He is not going to force us. He's not going to coerce us into a specific choice. He lays it before us. He does beckon us. He begs us in the direction of choosing life. He says, this, this is the very best. And you as, as parents and grandparents, you understand that. You gave those choices to your, to your children, to your grandchildren. 
He said, listen, this is, this is the better way to go. Choose this direction. And they either chose it or they went the other direction. You understand laying before them the choice. But again, those choices are theirs to make. So we understand that we're moral agents. We understand that we have the ability to make moral choices and how God leads us to make those choices and how he makes it very clear the direction he wants us to go. But the ball is still in our court. We still make those decisions. So what is our moral responsibility? Well, God wants us to choose life. He said that. Now, choose life. Why? So that you may live and so that your children will live. And the generations will continue on in a very moral, right way. Once we have made our decision and we decide, as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, then we need to act on that. With every moral decision comes a concrete action, such as he goes on to say in verse 20, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and cleaving or holding on to him. Those are three concrete actions when he says, choose life so that you and your children may live, and then he addresses the concrete action, three things that you need to do to engage in once you've made that choice. You have the moral responsibility to do that. First he says, love your God. And I believe with all of my heart <coughs> that love for God includes love for your neighbor. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's not a focus of legalism, trying to take care of all of these different rules and laws consolidated into two commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. I believe that love for neighbor includes acting in such a way that the life of the unborn child is protected. I believe that loving your neighbor includes acting in such a way that every single person, not only the unborn child, but the child, those who are disabled and the elderly among us all are protected. I believe that loving your neighbor also gives us an understanding that we ought to stand firm for anything that would not allow the protection. Protection opposing the ability for someone to take it, the life of an unborn child or to abuse a child in a home or some other setting or venue. To abuse the elderly, whether it be at home or whether it be in a facility somewhere. We've got to come to an understanding that we have a moral responsibility as moral agents, people who are people of faith and people who hold on to the scriptures to stand firm and not let anything take place that would abuse the sanctity of human life. And that means proactive. That means positive things like coming alongside ladies that are in our region who are having difficult decisions to make and how to make those decisions by helping them 
in financial ways where they can see that abortion doesn't have to take place, that there are alternatives, there are opportunities to help uh, mothers with their prenatal vitamins if they can't afford them, to give them an understanding that however we can come alongside some of the life pregnancy centers that we do support and help, that they have the opportunity, the education, the tools, the resources to help them. And then there's always that alternative to allow adoption and someone to take that child that you cannot take care of and to raise them. Knowing several close friends who are adopted and family members who have adopted, it changes their world. I believe that loving God means loving your neighbor. It means protecting any child, any senior adult, any unborn, any who have disabilities, from hunger, from abuse, and from ignorance is part of our responsibility. And as Christians, sometimes we just take a stand back and we say, well, society is going to take care of that. But society can change. They have no moral focus. <coughs> we can see that in decisions that are made. And we need to stand. We need to stand not only in the nation's center and speak boldly, but behind the scenes we need to go and come alongside and put our arms around those that need help and encouragement and strength. The biblical imperative is love your neighbor. He goes on to say, as a concrete action, obedience to God's voice. And I believe that means following a particular lifestyle. The prophet Micah spoke about what God expects in terms of how we live in our society. He says in Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Three things that God, through the prophet Micah, was telling his people, the people of Israel, and telling us that we need to do. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God wants us to build a just and kind and good community where every segment of society, the unborn child, the child, the one who is disabled, those who are disenfranchised, those who are devaluated, those who are elderly, the vulnerable, that we make sure that they are protected and cared for. That is what I believe, that they're eagerly awaited, that we can't wait to help those that are in need. That's the compassion and the heart of our Lord, always. biblical imperative is love your neighbor. And third, I think we must understand the actions. He, he goes on to say, hold or cleave to him. Talking about God. It suggests that we walk with God in such a way as that we understand the implications of our plans and our actions. That we understand that when we speak, we speak with the heart and the mind of Christ. It's a Christ-mindedness. 
It's a focus to say, when I, when I act, when I engage in society, when I stand firm for those who are vulnerable in our society, who do not have a voice for themselves, that we stand with them with a biblical understanding of both a biblical authority, but that Christ mindeth hate speech, not with anger, but with love and compassion. But we stand firm and say, these are the right things to do with those in our society that are marginalized. I believe that holding on to him, that we can evaluate our actions more fully. I think we all have to sit back for just a moment and look in the mirror and say, what have I done to help those in our society that we would classify as needing the sanctity of human life? Because every human life, Every human life is precious before Almighty God. Yours, mine, everyone's. So how can we step up? How can we be the Christians that God has called us to be? How can we engage in our actions to come beside those who are in need? I believe that God's illumination, His enlightenment from His Word in our lives can enable us to see whether or not what we did about a particular issue or particular people, whether it be abortion or whether it be taking care of our elderly, making sure that children in our society are taken care of at every level, at every way, how is it that we can engage in action? Because I believe that it's vital for us to make sure that we hang on to what the author of life has told us to do. Now choose life. At every stage, choose life. Because it will be successful. We will be able to engage. We'll be able to embrace those who need us. Rather than just leaving it to somebody else. Because we are moral agents. And we have moral choices to make. And we have a moral responsibility before Almighty God because His Word clearly states that, that we must evaluate, engage, and be involved. I might have told you about the guy who, uh, who was robbed at gunpoint. And he didn't report it, anything like that. A friend said, why, why didn't you report it? He said, oh, I didn't want to get involved. Listen. We have to be involved. We have to engage. Because those people we're talking about, they could be our grandchildren or great-grandchildren. They could be our family members who are disabled. They may one day be us in our elderly state. And I'll tell you what, as the years go on, I want somebody to be my advocate in my latter years. I want somebody who comes alongside and says, you know what, you're not done. God loves you. And you're blessed because of the life that you have, have lived. And I'm going to be here and be your advocate, and I'm going to make sure that things are taken care of for you. A great example of that is, uh, is Bill. <laughs> Hope you don't mind me saying this, Bill. But he took on the responsibility of Miss Smith. And I watched him every, and heard, got comments, as he would go by that facility every day 
and he would help her with lunch or visit with her. Every step along the way, he was there because of she needed an advocate, someone to be right there with her because her family couldn't. That's the kind of responsibilities that we, every one of us, should take on to find out what is it that God wants us to do and how do we engage, not just in the broad view, but actually touching lives. That's the commitment that we ought to make. You see, he wants us to work responsibly to see that innocent human life is protected and nurtured and loved. But the choice is ours as individuals. The choice is ours as the body of Christ. The choice is ours as a nation. The question is, what will we do? What will we do in regards to those decisions? And today, those are decisions I want you to consider and to think about. We know what he wants us to do. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Don't just think about it. Don't just make a decision in an invitation time in the pew. Once you make that decision, decide your concrete action of how you're going to fulfill the love God and love your neighbor, obey his voice, and cleave to him. And as walking with God through this whole process, growing and allowing him to reveal to you, here's what I want you to do to change the lives of people. One-on-one and also in our society. Father, as we move into our time of invitation, it's very specific what we're striving to give an understanding of. And it's a difficult decision. It's a difficult process that we go through. Because for many of us, it's hard to be involved. Our lives take on a life of itself. And how can we reach out to others? And yet, Father, that's the choice that you lay before us. And I pray this morning, a nation who is hurting, who has been facing consequences of decisions for decades now, Father, help us to make the connection. That from the point where prayer was taken out of the classroom to the point where abortion was provided for in this nation, we have seen instance after instance of divide, destruction, soul of a nation that has been ripped apart. But Father, we know that from those embers, you can bring back a bonfire of great revival, but it has to start with our focus on you and our focus with our responsibility as moral agents, making moral decisions and taking on our moral responsibility and not just putting it behind us and say, I can't be involved. Today, God, help us to realize that life is sacred. And however we can help, however we can engage, that God, we want to do that. First, in our understanding of our maturity with you. And secondly, as you reveal how we engage, that Father, we do that. We accomplish your heart's desire. And this morning, I pray that that decision will be made for each one of us. And we'll make it. And we'll make it as a church body. Father, if there's a relationship with Jesus that needs to be initiated today, someone to give their life to Christ, I pray they would choose to do that. Any other decisions today, God, help us to make those decisions.
But Father, the decisions are before us right now. You've said it before us this morning. Every single one of us have to make that decision. I pray we'll choose wisely and choose your desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand. We're going to sing our invitation to him. I'm going to be here at the front. If you have a decision to make, but more importantly, today I'd love for you to make a decision, just you and God, where you're standing in the pew and where you're watching in your living room. Make the decision to be morally responsible and to choose life. seated if you would for just a moment. First thing I would like to do is ask you to take this blue uh, piece of paper uh, that is before you. If you are a member of our church, there are deacon elections. It's a ballot. Uh, I'll just go quickly through the process. Back in October, we asked for nominations from the church at large. Those nominations were sent to the deacon screening team, and that team uh, went through the process of looking at all of the, all of the, uh, the nominations, zeroed in on uh, after prayer and discussion on uh, several that they felt uh, led to move forward with, sent them questionnaires, those questionnaires were filled out. Uh, some sent questionnaires back saying, not at this time, we don't feel God leading us. Others said, yes, this, this is what I sense God leading. At that point, the Deacon Screening team, uh, two of the members met with uh, each of our candidates and had an interview and they spoke with them about doctrinal issues, theological issues, practical issues, their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and came away with, uh, uh, through the interview, convened back together and discussed who they would bring forward to the congregation, past those uh, five, four or four individuals, I'm sorry, through to the, uh, the deacon body for them to have any comment on. The deacon body uh, seemed to, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, they were all excited about uh, about these four candidates and uh, so first Sunday in January 
we started listing the names for you publicly. And the third Sunday of January, which is today, can you believe it? Um, here we are, ready to, to vote. So what we'd like to ask you to do is these are the five people, that are four people, I'm sorry, that you see on the screen, uh, Pat Sittner, uh, Tom Lachine, uh, Chuck Mitchell, and Gail Coffey. Uh, you may or may not know all about them, but the Deacon Screening Team knows a lot about them. And uh, um, what we're gonna ask you to do is just circle. If you feel like, yes, they would uh, serve as a good deacon, just put yes. If you think they wouldn't, just put no. Once you're finished with that, if you would just fold it over and if you would move it to the center uh, of the aisles and our, we have a couple of deacons assigned to pick those up, those deacons would go ahead and stand and, and uh, prepare to pick those up. But if you would, you know, I actually didn't think about this. We've probably taken all the pins out of the pews. So if you need, uh, if you need a pin, when you, uh, when you head out, I think there are pins at each of the boxes, um, at least one. If you could fill that out there and then just put them in one of the baskets at the end as well. Um, so if you would go ahead and make those uh, vote, if you have those available, those pins available, and, uh, and then just bring them into the, to the center aisles and our deacons will pick those up. Talking about pins and what we're striving to do, one of the reasons that our church has been able to continue to meet is because we have um, vigorously, in every way that we possibly can, said, you know what, we, our leadership team, they, they focus on the criteria of what the CDC says, what the department uh, in Arizona, and what's happening in Sun City West. And they compile all that information. And we get together, we just got together on Thursday. And it's been about an hour and a half. There's about 15 of us, I think, at that meeting. Uh, that's our deacon body, retired pastors that we have, and, and seminary professors, and, uh, and uh, chairpersons of our various committees. We get together and we talk about what are we doing. We know right now that there is a spike of the coronavirus. Uh, we've had uh, probably four or five of our members that have have had to deal with that at various levels. And uh, um, it is absolutely critical. The leadership team decided this past Thursday we will continue to meet on Sunday mornings. We're not doing anything else still. Um, we discussed a lot of different avenues because there is a spike and it is real. And um, we want to go back and reaffirm that the reason we're able to continue to meet is because People are wearing their masks when they come in, and we need to keep it on all the time because uh, it's critical. That's just part of our protocol. That's why we continue. Uh, we ask you to wash your hands when you come in. We ask you to, to make sure that you're social distanced, and we do the very best we can. We have a cleaning crew that comes in after this service and sanitizes everything for the next service that comes. But I want to emphasize how important it is as, as you sit in the pews and for our singers, they sing up here without it. We have them situated in such a way that, uh, that it doesn't affect us on, on stage. It doesn't go hopefully too far. But the idea is that we do everything we can to protect this body of Christ. Um, we don't want anybody to get sick. And with the spike, we want to make sure that we follow those restrictions. Otherwise, we'll have to take a step back and pause again. We don't really want to do that. We want... We want everybody to, to be engaged. And some will say, well, the mask, you know, I'm not worried about me getting it. Well, you know what, I'm not necessarily, if you don't want to wear a mask, uh, I'm not as concerned about you, but what you're going to give to somebody else. 
because there are other people that are highly susceptible and if you don't have your mask on, what happens is if you're just breathing or if you're singing, those particles go. I mean, there's great research. Our team has done a great job going through and researching all of this. And so we make calculations based on those things. And so this idea of loving your neighbor is, listen, while I'm not necessarily concerned, I'm going to fulfill what the, uh, what the requirements for us to have services to, to be and to accomplish because it's more about my neighbor than it is about me on this. So just know we're doing everything that we can. We encourage the folks that don't feel comfortable, stay at home, watch on our live stream, whether it's on our, our, our online or our Facebook. We want people to have those choices. And so just continue to pray. And as we see this uptick, and it is definitely an uptick, um, even in Sun City West, I think the cases have gone from 450 back in October to well over 1,200 now. Uh, it, we just have to, to do everything that we can. So I'm not trying to, to marginalize this. I'm not trying to, to go over the edge on this. What I'm trying to do is say, this is why we're able to continue to meet. And let's be faithful in that. And don't worry, I'm gonna tell the second service that same thing, okay? Because the leadership team has spent a lot of time really contemplating this this past week. And the emphasis was, we want to continue to meet. We need to see each other, but we also want to be as safe as we possibly can. And that said, uh, Nancy and I won't be at the doors, uh, so when you get ready to leave, the ushers, when the time comes, we'll escort you out. Just follow them because we're trying to, again, keep that distance between folks. And I'm going to ask the ushers if they would, if they'll start in the back and come to the front this time as you guys get ready. Just start at the back, and uh, then you can come to the front and, uh, and uh, let folks go out. But please do everything that you possibly can. I can't, I can't do anything about what you do outside, but here, uh, man, I like preaching. And I like preaching to people here, and I'd like to be able to continue to preach to you. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's do everything we can, okay? Uh, I, I think that that's everything I was going to say. Nancy, I don't know what you have. Just a quick announcement, and I'm going to ask Bill Sweeney if he would be making his way forward to lead us in our closing prayer. The office is closed tomorrow in observance of Martin Luther King Day, but if you need us, you have our numbers. Bill, would you come and lead us in our closing prayer? Our Father and our God, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for this message to us about how important life is to each of us. Most of all, how important it is to you that we share what you have for us to others around us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. Thank you for the opportunity to come and worship sing praises to your name. Again, we want to pay a special prayer for, for Debbie Crump and her family and the loss of our good friend Jim. He is with you, Lord, now. Thank you, Lord, for sharing him with us for this time. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. In your holy name we ask it. Amen.